colleagues that are that are more inclined to to teach uh, it. But I mean, I think I think I think that I mean, the I just think that's something that's, that's going to have to work it work its uh, uh, way through because. If you ask, if you ask the question, what's going on on the research side of the of, of higher education, it is, I think, going to narrow and narrow more and more uh, uh, defined silos of, of specialization that that are, uh, in many respects, working orthogonally to the the needs of of thinking in the in the twenty first uh, century. So I think there's a challenge. So I think there's a big challenge. Although you wouldn't disagree with the idea that universities have to play a very important role in, in the development of new knowledge, and new knowledge is what helps get us to be more talented as a society. Your your point, your your more specific point is the way that we're now doing knowledge development is too narrow for us to, to, to benefit broadly. Yeah, I think it's I think it's yeah getting unhelpfully uh, so when there's too little effort put at figuring out uh, if. You can explain a phenomenon uh, from one perspective, a sociological perspective, and another from I don't know what a, 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 a historical perspective. Uh, <coughs> is there actually a way for those two fields to actually talk to one another constructively? And the answer, and the answer is, it's less often that that, that, that happens than uh, than would be useful for humanity. Uh, and we're not exactly heading in that direction uh, fast. What do you think? Um, so it sounds like I don't know if this is if this is wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is that um, so um, in the past maybe we had all these like your thesis for your book, Jamie, is that there were it was a very we were a talented society in the 20th century and we had all these creative solutions to hard problems, and and then apparently we did that with only a tiny percentage of people exercising independent judgment in their jobs. So there, is there a relationship between having a talented society and a democratic society, right? Because if it's actually better to have smart people telling everyone else what to do, which is crude, but kind of a summary of those two facts, um, you know, what are the implications of that? And then it sounds like what you're saying now, Roger, is that creative solutions now require a much higher percentage of people who are able to exercise independent judgment and themselves reimagine re problems in this creative way. And then, so, so what do we do then with an educational system that was set up to produce 13% of people who could do this to, a, to an educational system that produces, I don't know, 80% of people who can do this? And, and what's the relationship between that and really, at the same time, building a truly democratic society where equal educational opportunity is real? You know, I mean, I think that's kind of a challenge. And, um, and insofar as, as, as that's the mission of education, we have to change how we're doing things in order to accomplish that, whether it's through diversification and differentiation in the educational market so students can choose what they want, whether it's in retraining people who have been educated by these 20th century methods um, to, 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 to these new jobs or whatever it is. But, but it sounds like that's, it's a good thing because now the needs of the economy are pushing us to be more democratic at a time when technology might enable us actually to do that. Yeah. No, I, I, I love the summer. I agree with everything. I'll just add on top. It's, it's, it's a clear driver of the inequality challenge uh, that we have because if you look at those creativity intensive jobs versus the routine intensive jobs, the average pay is two and a half times higher for the, for the creativity, uh, creativity intensive jobs. 
And you can imagine why. Like, the problem of inequality is not the poor getting poorer. That's absolutely not the, not, there is no data uh, uh, to support that notion. Uh, the difference between the 10th percentile and the 50th percentile earnings in America have been completely uh, flat for the past 40 years. Uh, what's, what's changed is the difference between the 50th and the 90th, which has gone out of sight, and the 99th even more out of sight. And you can see from the structure of the economy why that would be the case, right? which, is, which, is that, uh, which is that those jobs in the routine uh, category are completely stagnant in terms of uh, uh, earnings, right? They just, they, they just are. Uh, meanwhile, as, as the economy has shifted in the ways you, 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 you summarized, Carol, the value of talent, of high-end talent, has just gotten higher and higher and higher. So high-end talent is just grabbing more and more of the fruits of the, of the economy. And there's too little of that high-end talent, so what's the pressure on wages there? Uh, there's too much of the, of, the, of the routine talent. What's the pressure on the wages there? Yeah. Down. And so, and so, so there's, a real, there's a really strong crossroad with what you said and the challenge to democracy. Because last time I checked, you still need 51%. And 51%, uh, you know, the median income in America, after basically going up for 213 years, almost all the years, <coughs> since 1989, between 1989 and 2013, it's flat. So 25 years of that being flat, and those, those folks are still voting to maintain the system uh, as it exists, largely. So there's, I, I would argue that if we don't create the fixes to the, to the talent development system, higher ed being, being a part of it, uh, we are threatening the, the fundamentals of, of American uh, democracy as it, as it exists today. So I want to, I got a couple more questions I want to get on the table here, and I want to come back to, to, to that point. I just want to underscore your uh, your point, though, that you know the, the wage differential between those with post-secondary education and those without continues to increase. Although if you read the media narrative, you would not believe that. It is a fact that the wage differential continues to increase. And the only way to explain that is what you said, which is that the demand for that talent continues to increase, and employers are willing to pay a premium for that, and the net result is that that, that differential keeps going up and up. Ironically, if we are able to educate more people, if we're able to actually um, um, increase the, the broad talent level of society, that differential is going to come down, which has a, uh, will, will have an interesting effect if we ever get to that point, uh, which is that we're going to have to explain why the differential is actually narrowing in an environment where more people are talented. Well, we'd like to cross that bridge when we get to it, in my, in my opinion. A high-class uh, problem. A high-class problem to have, exactly. So, but back to my question here. So, so, so who else is responsible here, and what are their roles in this? What's the role of the NGO sector? What's the role of government? What's the role of business in developing and deploying this, this talent? Uh, surely this is not all on the backs of, of higher education. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about the kind of talent that we need to develop, which it sounds has a kind of specificity, right? It's, it's a particular kind of capacity for independent judgment and creative approaches to problems and actually questioning what you've been told to do in the light of finding a better way or a new product or creating something new. And I'll just add, because to, to, I like your summary, and to be able to think across models, right. that, that, that I think is becoming ever more important because those creative answers come, come uh, out of it. 
So I, I can just speak for Harry, maybe this is applicable. I, if I were doing that, I would, if I were going to build a college or university from the ground up today, I would, I would not do it around departments. I would not create departments. I would create areas of inquiry that had people in it, in them from who have been trained differently and who could bring multiple analytical models to every question they ask you. Like our kids want, how do you make healthcare good and affordable? Okay, so you need economists, you need biologists, you need physicians, you need policymakers, you need people who understand consumer behavior, you need psychologists. All of those people have to think about that problem if we're ever gonna figure it out, right? And so instead of creating psychology and biology, I would create, you know, you know, healthcare and human flourishing or something like that. And have and actually deploy people and build a curriculum around that question. Um, but but it's really hard to do that. There's no way I could actually do that. So I mean I wouldn't have the um, it would, it would be difficult to do that now. But I wonder if we can replicate some of that even in, for, for children, and little children, and say, instead of you know, English, I don't even, you know, whatever it is, have, um, have broader areas where early on they're accustomed to thinking across yeah. models. Yeah. Um, no, see, I it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of it before you, you, you said it, and maybe we should build that. And this is this is just not an advertisement for the corporate sector. The corporate sector needs needs a hell of a lot of work. But interesting enough, it crossed that that bridge about fifty years ago. So so up till up till the sixties, almost all companies were organized functionally. So the, the, if you just thought about it, it was CEO and then reporting to the CEO, head of manufacturing, head of marketing, head of human resources, et cetera, right? Uh, and, and within those functions, they had to deal with creating a bunch of products. Uh, you know, so the marketing people would, would have a piece of the, the, of the puzzle and then creating a product, uh, the manufacturing people would, et cetera. And then, and then what people, uh, companies realized is, gee, product is an, such an important organizing principle that we should organize around product, which means like you're organizing right, around right, right. inquiry. Right. But but then then they also realize, hmm, if that's what we do, we won't we won't be able to maintain and build manufacturing expertise, marketing expertise, whatever. So so what what arose was the notion that you needed some kind of a, a matrix structure, uh, which which has been challenging. And, and then if, you know if if you add geograph geography to it, you need to get like, like a cube. Um, and this is this is sort of the devil's corporations ever since. And, and you'll hear co companies say, "Oh, our matrix structure is so hard to get things done," and blah blah blah. But it's and, and they often say, "Well, can, couldn't we just get rid of it?" Yeah. And, and I say, "Sure, if you want to get rid of all the one product, you can try that, or all the one geography, give it a go, uh, or all the one function." Uh, sorry, it's part of modern life. And so it's. It, I mean, I hadn't thought of it until you 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 said it, but the universities. Have stayed with, if you will, the moral equivalent of the functional model, and the functional model was or organized to build expertise. Have great manufacturing, great marketing, right. so it's great sociology, great history, great in our, in our field. It is it is those it is those uh, uh, functions, and so maybe that is the next thing that higher ed needs to do is say, sorry, I know it's more complicated because all the yeah, professors would say, don't make me don't make me work in a group uh, on an on a, on, on a, on a area of inquiry. I want to I want to do no, I don't want to do my work in my my area. But in the corporate sector, it would be impossible for it to do the job it does now. It had that change not been made 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, again, I mean, I guess the, the way I think about that is I don't think about it in terms of obligations as much as I, I think of, of relevance. So to the extent that a sector uh, creates relevant and useful outputs, more resources will be applied to it, more things will be asked of, of, uh, of it. And I would argue that you know, the NGO sector, that was not even a term of art about what, 15 or 20 years ago, and now it's a kind of big emerging sector, and I can only infer that it's because it's doing the useful stuff that other other people didn't do, and, and it sort of begs the question, well, what's the stuff they're doing that other others aren't? I think the multinational kind of global organizations are one of the things that are like heading down in, yeah, in utility, and NGOs have taken up the space, but but I think every, I mean, I guess I would say every sector has a challenge to either be more useful or less useful. You know, higher ed has got a chance to be more useful or less useful, and it'll get more resources. People will pay more attention to it to the extent it's more useful. I guess my, my last question is, so is, is, um, is talent uh, ultimately about work? I mean, does it come down to uh, uh, getting a more talented society comes down to work and jobs, or, or is... You know, in my characterization, it's the maximization of human potential that what we need as a society to, to, to be more, more talented, and that encompasses many things. But uh, it's also true that uh, if you don't have a job and you're not making a living wage, you've got a real problem with being able to contribute either individually or collectively uh, to society. So, it, so does it ultimately come down to, to, to work in jobs, or is it about something broader than that? I don't want to ask the college president first. I want to ask you first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess... I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think most people will express their talent through a job. That does not mean a business job, a for-profit job. It means a job, a university professor, an artist, or, or uh, whatever. Um, some of those jobs will not be jobs that have a, uh, a sort of a market wage associated with them, so that somebody has to, somebody else has to subsidize it and pay pay for it because society wants that person to express that that talent. But I guess I yeah, I find it hard to uh, hard to imagine talent that is not reflected in what the person does on a daily basis. Carol? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I'm maybe a, a classic example of, of a talent that our society really counts on and that we really need and that we pay a huge price when we don't cultivate it is parenting. You know, I, you know, I, I have a kid, I'm really not sure what, what, how people learn or, um, or, or become parents, good parents, and, and, um, and yet that, that feels really, really important. Um, so I think it's probably expressed in a multitude of ways. I, I don't know whether there's, I don't know whether the same process of cultivation works in all arenas, right? So that if you're, if you're cultivating talent for someone's job, you're also cultivating talent for other things. I have no idea whether that's right. Um, or, um, but I, I think that the notion of independence of judgment and some capacity to engage in a genuine way with people other than yourself and some capacity to understand the consequences and implications of your actions as well as their intrinsic quality, all those things are really important for us to help our, our, our kids learn. And, um, that, very good point. Very, very good point. Let's open it up to your questions and, and comments. Yeah. Um, so I think the metaphor for my, so I, thank you. 
And I feel like, you know, I've heard you, Carol, and Jamie, I know your work, Illumina stands for. I feel like the metaphor for what I want to say is that we all should have walked in here with sledgehammers if we want to really talk about talent cultivation. Because I think the model is dramatically broken. And I would use the example of my father, if he were still alive, he'd be 77, black man, not college educated, was a pump gas and a janitor for most of his life. But he also took three kids to Europe for 18 months, and he figured out how to model to make that happen in the mid-80s. And it's an extraordinary story that I've never seen anyone else tell in their lives. And as a janitor, he ran for city council in a city with fewer than 1% black people, and he won. But he struggled to find a job. He was, when he passed away, a talent that was not able to be actualized because of the structures. So we, I think, talk a lot about the great talents of the last 50 years or 75 years in this country, but what we don't talk about is the talent that was wasted. And well, Lumina was and, and was, was and now is being wasted. And I feel like Lumina, I mean, you guys are really focused, and Carol, I heard you talking a little bit about that. And so I feel like what we really need to be talking about is all of the stories that sort of Arnie Duncan and, you know, was mentioning and Paul Tuff talks about. And we should all be looking around our organizations and saying, why are there only two black people in this group? I mean, like, let's get real about it. What, you know, if we start looking across class and say, who are all of the talented people or the people that we recognize might have talent, let's bring them to Aspen. Let's do all of those things. That's what I think is the real conversation. So it's like all of these organizations, government, NGOs, universities, we all, and individually, all have responsibility to do it. That, for me, is what this conversation should be about. So can I ask a question about that? So this is, right now, a hugely important question um, I don't know how to generalize from it, but I just need the higher end perspective, right? The, the highly selective higher end perspective. Yeah. That is to say, there's a ton of talent that we are not finding. And so what's broken there are our talent recognition mechanisms. Yeah. And there's some multi there, are, there are examples of new ways of recognizing talent, particularly yeah. talent that, um, so we have a system that was designed when the pop college going population was super homogeneous, right? And, um, and Maybe it worked for that group, right? But it's clearly missing hugely talented people now. So, so does that mean we throw away the talent, the mechanisms by which we now recognize talent? So standardized tests, GPA, academic performance, and look for I don't know what exactly, but other things. There's some posse does that, right? There's some examples of organizations that do that. Questwitch does that, and we work with them because we trust their methods better than our own. So I would say a couple of things quickly about other people and opportunities. So one is that, um, so this, this actually was a very personal experience for me when I went to Washington Lee, one of Davidson's good competitors, um, and barely made it in, had to pay all cash, no scholarship, has been in debt forever for doing that. Um, and when I graduated, um, after going to the Peace Corps and before going to law school, um, they offered me a job in, to recruit. And they said, we want you to recruit in the Mid-Atlantic. And I said, well, I'm assuming you want me to like use my some of my natural abilities to recruit students of color. They said, yes, that would be great. And I said, if you want me to do that, you have to give me purview across this country. I'm going to go and I'm going to handpick all across this country, and I'm going to bring you more minority students than you've ever had. And they said, we can't give you that authority. Yeah, feeder schools. Yeah, yeah. we're going to give you PG County feeder yeah, schools. Yeah. Yeah. So. But that, you know that I don't know why they did that, but one 
He's still there, Bruce Hartog. For one reason, might be the way that they were ordered. They didn't know how to think outside of regions, right? And so that I think that is yeah, that's what I mean. Sledgehammers. And, and yeah. So, so the first thing we got to do is fix our own resistance to creating an organizational structure that enables or even allows creativity to happen among our own people. Yeah, and, it's, and, and in this case, it's it's a it's a, again it's a it's a battle between two forces: reliability and validity. You know, we use we use reliable methods. Uh, a reliable method is one that gets you a consistent, replicable outcome. A valid method is one that gets you one that you actually want, uh, right? And, and and most of life, partially because of what the 20th century was about, which is big, consistent, uh, simple uh, system, systems. Many of the systems are reliability oriented. So, so you know. IQ testing is a perfect example. Right. IQ testing is incredibly reliable. If you take the Stanford Binet IQ test 10 times, you'll score within a point or two of the same thing all 10 times, even if it's taken over a 50-year period. So people love the IQ test. What's the problem with the IQ test? It doesn't tell you hardly anything, <laughs> right? 30% correlation with anything good that could ever happen to you in the, in the future, right? And so, so, but it's used, and, and the moral equivalent are the GMAT, uh, MCAT, blah, 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 which, which, are, which are incredibly reliable and largely, largely useless. Uh, if, uh, and, but the method, they, they rejected your method, I would argue, uh, entirely because of a, of a warmth with reliability and a, and a, a worry about validity. Because you said, just trust me, I, I've, got, I've got a little machine in the top of my head. I, I can go around the country and I'll get good people on it that you could have. Uh, but that's not reliability oriented. It doesn't sound reliable. And so forget it. Uh, uh, very, very well said. I, this is a quick tangent, but I'll make my point before I get to the next question, which is that um, you know, one of my hobby courses here is that the, the, the problem when it comes from the higher ed perspective is that the credentials that we produce don't actually, there's no common understanding of what they represent. Right? So we, we award a bachelor's degree. Back to my point about the problem with the system, uh, you know, that it's a, a time-based system rather than an outcomes-based system where you can say people have competency, they have proficiency, they know how to do stuff, they, they, they know things, etc. If we could figure that part out, we could probably actually develop a, a better mechanisms for both producing those outcomes and testing whether or not they are valid over time. But there's a real problem. You know, if in... in uh, in a democracy, in a, in a modern economy where so many of those jobs require that post-secondary education, it's ironic. You know, it's sort of your it's your it's your currency in this labor market, right? It's it's, it's how you it's how you get ahead. But in fact, uh, nobody knows what the hell it means. They're, you know, and so what we do is we use proxy measures. Oh, Harvard is clearly better than Bates. Why? Well, what, how do how can, how do we validate that? I've, I have no way of, of validating. That. No, it's a it's a selection engine. And I ran, so I ran recruiting at Monitor for many years, yeah. one of the biggest recruiters at Harvard Business School, and I would have much more happily recruited from the admissions list than the graduation list. Because you had to deprogram them for a couple of years uh, yeah. uh, if you hired them upon graduation. Okay, my first hand up was there. So yeah, go ahead, you. Go ahead. Um, I guess I'm curious about this both from the education standpoint as well as the business standpoint. What impact do you think the whole technology, the technological revolution has had on developing more talents in society because I think there's cases where it's been beneficial and, and potentially cases where it's hurt it. And one quick, at least on the academic side, I spoke with a professor who gave this amazing group project and had this 
image of late night pizza boxes and pizza crusts and, and brainstorming and thinking creatively across, you know, with people from different di disciplines, you know, where they came from, turned out, and she didn't know, it got an A on the project, they never met in person. The entire thing was done on Gchat. So the product was great, but what are we missing in the process? So it's, it's uh, my, my short answer is uh, technology is going to change everything. Uh, I think there's no doubt about it. And so technology's transformative potential is enormous. I think it is going to happen. The question is, is are the benefits going to be equally uh, or even moderately equally distributed? Or are we going to reproduce privilege in, in, uh, in the uh, new talented society? Because uh, technology will, the benefits of technology will accrue more to to people who already have capability, already have economic capacity, et cetera. So I'm excited and I'm worried all at the same time. So I, I think, I mean, in some sense, when technology wholly replaces face-to-face -face interaction or um, um, our experience of being present in a particular moment in a way that allows us to see something that we didn't expect to see, I, I think um, I think that's, that could be impoverishing. Um, so one of the things I've learned um, in moving from a very big city, Houston, Texas, to a very small downtown, Davis, North Carolina, is the power, and it's probably, it's a little bit regional, it's probably the power of community and what it means for people to take for granted their obligation to build it. And, and often what it means is being attentive to the thing in front of you and feeling in some sense of responsibility for addressing that thing, even if it wasn't in your plan, and even if it's not. And, and I find it difficult to imagine how even these amazing interactive chat groups um, can, can, can cultivate that ability in people. So, and, and I guess as somebody whose path to, you know, where I am now is totally unconventional, and whose personal life was not what I expected, and, all these things that I feel like being attentive to the thing in front of you matters in some way. Yeah. So I, I don't know how to, and I think it's also a part about being a creative person. So I, I don't know the answer to your question, but but I think about that. Uh, we've got I got the five minutes signed. So I want to get to a few more quick questions and quick answers, David. Okay. Um, I think um, John and Carol have both done a great job of fleshing out the need for better talent identification. Um, and I'm in a weird situation. I run a venture capital firm, so the 0.01% is really important, but I'm on a <laughs> school board of a 100,000 student system that has lots of great magnets, um, and we do a pretty good job of talent identification, but is there anything working in the actual delivery of education? We spent a lot of time on Davidson and Harvard right here and worrying about better, better, better identification of talent. But most kids go to average schools. Yes. A lot of them go to worse than average schools. So can, can you give some guidance on what is actually working to teach and inculcate the skills through which talent can be shown? Well, you already know my answer because we talked about it, which is competency-based learning. I, I think uh, I think you've got to move towards a model where, where competency is the expectation, uh, shifting from that model from what is taught to what is learned by actually requiring that people demonstrate that they know things, that they can do things. I think that's the greatest potential both at the K-12 and the higher ed level. There's a risk in that, and I understand what the risk is, 
which is that you can end up uh, developing a, high, you know, a highly specialized system where you're narrowing down to too small of a set of competencies, too small of a set of proficiencies. But I don't see any any other way. That 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 that's my short answer. I, I think we're going to learn a lot about how technology can help with um, if, um, more effective um, master content, especially in things like that. So real time feedback, which technology enables for every kid, um, immediate feedback on that's going to be very helpful. Um, I think some of the peer to peer cohort instruction that can happen through online systems, blended learning systems can be usually helpful. Um, I think it's important that all of our teachers, that we feed our teachers, and that our teachers have what it takes to cultivate and develop their passion for their subject. You know, I have enormous respect for Mike Feinberg and Kip, and when, when Mike hires teachers, he what the number one thing he cares about is passion. Passion, not passion for your subject, and passion for sharing your love and interest in that subject with other people. So, I, 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 how do we feed teachers so that they can, they're not like crushed by the bureaucracy of it all and are able to cultivate their own passion for what they're trying to do? And that's not really a clear answer to your question, but I do think some combination of better teacher support and technology will allow us to deliver deliver content in a way that produces better outcomes. And we I'm have competency-based learning is great, but, but I mean, I think the delivery method has to change. Okay, I totally agree. I, one more question, yes. I just have a question that I think if you're going to try to, uh, you know, begin to cultivate a, a talented society, you have to, I know you're all in higher education, but we have to take it all the way back. And we have to take it down, back to where we have universal pre-K quality. And if any, any of you have an opportunity to go into a quality preschool and if two-thirds of the program is free play, you will see the curiosity, you will see the imagination, and you will be seeing it cultivated from the ground up when it actually has an impact on the brain and it moves up. And it is that, and then as you cultivate that through the years, so then when they get to college, then you can continue to support that. But if you don't start it from the beginning, I can't imagine how daunting your challenge is when you're trying to find it in college. Well, if I can, if I can just say on, on that, you'd be happy to, happy to know. So we, uh, at, at, our, at our school, Rockland School of Management, we, we've been working on the challenge of how do you actually systematically think across models? How do you teach a technique for that meta skill? And uh, we've, we figured it out. We teach it to, uh, to MBAs. We then started teaching it to undergrads and said, why did we stop there? And we started teaching it to high schoolers. So we've got this huge program now in Toronto where we're teaching our integrative uh, thinking stuff to high schools. And now we're doing it in public schools. So we've got it down to nine-year-olds <coughs> who, are, who are learning uh, what to do when you've got conflicting models, uh, how to build a better one that's uh, something other than my model's better than yours or will compromise. And so, and the interesting learning is they can do it as well as MBAs. Uh, they can be they can be taught that they aren't. Uh, they can be taught it. So we haven't tried uh, 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 K and pre K yet, but uh, we're getting there. Uh, our fundamental challenge is time, right? Time is really our enemy here because it takes a long time to get from pre K to you know what we would call the actualization of, of that talent. And that's a real problem when you're trying to create a sort of societal momentum around it, public policy, things like that. You know, we want we want immediate impact here. Time's also our problem because 
I'm, I'm unwilling from a moral perspective to write off everybody above the age of 13 because they didn't get universal pre-K, right? I think, I think we've got to think about the consequence of that, which is where, in, in prior sessions, you know, this whole issue of true lifelong learning has got to be part of, uh, of the equation. I don't see any other way about, around it. Speaking of time, we are out of it. So um, thank you all very much for joining us.